0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for tapping on us today, and thanks for subscribing to the podcast if you have done that. If you haven't done that, well, now's a good a time as any. Also, remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Cast. We often tweet stories related to some of the things we've talked about on the show, and we do that throughout the week. This is episode number 98 of The Next Track. If you've been following along, we've had episodes that focus on the music from a particular year and that music's influence. We've done The Summer of Love, 1967. We looked at 1977. And in this episode, we've chosen 1981. Now, we didn't just choose it arbitrarily. It's actually a pretty good year for us because... Well, Kirk and I were reasonably cognizant at the time, and so we actually remember some of the things that went on in 1981 firsthand. But also, I think you'll agree that 1981 was an important year for music. You you say reasonably cognizant. It's worth noting that
1: you were working in radio in 1981, and this was probably the peak of my music-collecting interest year. I think in 1981, most weeks I would buy either Melody Maker or New Music Express to keep up on what was coming from the UK, because... After around seventy-eight, seventy-nine, we were discovering all this great music from the UK that didn't necessarily break in the US. I was spending a lot of time in record stores on Bleecker Street looking at the import bins and the cutouts and the demos and all that. And this was kind of a period when I would buy music based on a review in NME or Melody Maker without even having heard it. In many cases, it would be you're familiar with a band member who came from another band, but I would buy singles just because a review said they were good.
0: Right. There there was a lot of music being released. I mean, it was part of that era where the record companies would just record and release anything, but the radio didn't play at all. And I think over here, we like to keep an eye on what was going on in Britain because that's where a lot of the new and interesting music had been coming from and and was being produced. Like you said, I was working in college radio, but I also had two part-time jobs in radio at two very different commercial stations. One was a straightforward album-oriented rock format, and the other one was a full-service AM station that played what was known then as middle-of-the-road music, essentially square pop music. But what you started seeing in 1981 was New Wave breaking into pop music's domain, and and a band I, and an album, uh, I think, that typifies this New Wave breakthrough is the first album by the Go-Go's called Beauty and the Beat. Their record label, IRS, I remember, really pushed this album over the summer of 81. They had released We Got the Beat early in the summer, and that picked up airplay and club play. And then the album was released in midsummer, and then by the fall, when all the kids were back to school, the album was a tremendous hit. Now, you had the novelty, of course, of an all-female band, but you also had music that was new wave and more pop than DIY sounding, and it crossed over. Yeah, we we looked back at
1: 1977 a few years back. We also did an episode about disco, which kind of overlapped 77 to around 80, 81. Uh, I think 1981 is this period when that synth-pop new wave started becoming mainstream. It had been sort of underground for a while. And when there was a whole new energetic pop, just pure pop, like what you're talking about, the Go-Go's, or, or things like Adam and the Ants, this this pop that has no pretensions for being anything else— or even Billy Idol. I mean, this was the year of Billy Idol, if you remember that. So we had this this combination of the post-punk, new wave stuff and and the stuff that was influenced by disco. And at the same time, as we'll, we'll talk later, there was a huge influence of rap going into the mainstream. I will right now say the best album of 1981 was released about two weeks before 1981. It was The Clash's Sandinista. The Magnificent Seven was the song that I heard on boomboxes all over New York. But at the same time, we heard, you know, the Sugar Hill Gang, we heard Blondie's song Rapture, so rap was was a big thing. Reggae, dub, and ska, all these bands were, were all of a sudden hitting the mainstream instead of being this underground music.
0: Well, you know, you mentioned reggae, dub, and ska. The Police's Ghosts in the Machine was released that year, and that's the album with Spirits in the Material World and Every Little Thing She Does is Magic and Invisible Sun and Demolition Man, which was a, a club hit for Grace Jones yeah. before they released their version of it. And and so you're talking about dub and, and reggae. They definitely took that and, and brought it into pop music.
1: Another thing that I noticed doing my research, listening to 87 hours of 1981 music this weekend, was... That When we looked at 1967, I was listening to albums and saying this was a great album in 1967. 1981, it was all about songs. It was all about singles. In some cases, a band had two or three hits, but it was generally one song from an album that really broke out from a specific band.
0: Yeah, I wonder if it's because a lot of these bands would release singles to clubs and hope that it would it go from the clubs onto the radio. For instance... Duran Durant's debut album was released. It didn't do very well at first. They did Girls on Film, a very controversial video for release in clubs. Now, MTV did start in 1981, but not a lot of people were watching it. But a lot of these bands were creating videos to be shown in clubs. And that's where a lot of this music was starting to, was starting to brew as well.
1: Yeah. And and a lot of it was dance music. And, and here we had seen the morphing of discos into sort of two threads. The one that was still Playing disco, disco, which is more black and Latin-oriented disco, and the ones that were playing all of the white new wave, new romantic type dance music, and and the, and the new wave stuff quickly went from post-punk into this poppy type of music. And, and if you think of, you think of bands like Depeche Mode and Human League and Heaven Seventeen, Spandau Ballet, Duran Duran, as you said, these are all bands that started with a sort of new wave sensibility but went into pure dance music with the glitzy clothes and, and the whole new romantic haircuts and all that.
0: I remember when the first Duran Duran album came out, I wrote on it. We would we would write notes on, on these albums for, for the other DJs. And I wrote, this is blitz music. This is going to be the dance music of the 1980s. And of course, it didn't turn out that way. And a lot of those bands, including Duran Duran, had more success in the UK than they did early on in the US. In fact, Duran Duran's first album did better when it was re-released after their second album, Rio, came out.
1: So let's go beyond the slightly underground pop music and talk
0: about a couple of the biggest records of the year. Rolling Stones? Rolling Stones' Tattoo You came out. Start Me Up was released... Start Me Up? Was released in... August of 1981, and again, like that Go-Go single I talked about, it just blew up. I mean, there were AM stations in New York that were playing it. I remember hearing it on WNBC. (laughs) It was that kind of crossover where it was was a new wavy sort of sounding song. It was a dance song. It was a rock and roll song, and it was incredibly popular, and... You saw the Rolling Stones in 1981. Did they, they were, doing, were they doing songs from Tattoo You? They must have been.
1: They were, yeah. I saw them in November at the Brendan Byrne Arena in New Jersey. This was a show where uh, we were talking about it before the show. I remember Tina Turner coming on and singing with Mick Jagger and singing Honky Tonk Woman, but I didn't remember that her band actually opened for the Rolling Stones. And I'll put a link in the show notes to a website that talks about this and has some audio samples. And apparently this was a big deal because this was the first time that This launched her solo career, these three shows that she did in New Jersey. The Stones put on a great show. It's the only time I've seen them. I I managed to walk out and get a pair of tickets at the last
0: minute. But it was a great show. It was, you know, it was perfect. I've heard people say that that's their last good tour. And in fact, they did not tour the United States again until 1989, effectively skipping the 1980s as far as the U.S. goes. The tour was recorded, and some of the songs made it to a live album called Still Life a year or two later. And also the concert film, Let's Spend the Night Together, is of the Tattoo You tour.
1: Another important thing about 1981 is it was the year of the Walkman. Now, we've talked about the Walkman in the past, and and I had an early one, I think, in 78 or 79, before it was called the Walkman. The WM2 came out in 1981. It was smaller. It had those headphones with the little orange cushions on them. And all of a sudden, you saw them everywhere. And so what this meant is that music in 1981 was not just for the radio, for the car, for the club, but it was also for this personal listening. And this was really the first time that you had masses of people walking around like drones listening to music. We
0: have to do a show on cassettes, but this was essentially the height of the cassette era. And it enabled people to take their music with them and be more discerning about the music that they could listen to all the time. They didn't need a radio. They could pick their own music. And they weren't just buying pre-recorded cassettes. They were making their own mixtapes at home. Well, they were able to
1: make their own mixtapes. And so at the end of 1981, the recording industry launched the Home Taping is Killing Music campaign because they were really, really worried that cassettes were becoming a, a really big hit to the bottom line.
0: Well one of the ways that the music industry tried to combat pirating like this was to release, as I said, pre recorded cassettes.
1: Well they did, and, and I used to and I bought a bunch of cassettes and I probably still have some. One of one of the weirdest hit songs of the year was Laurie Anderson's O oh, Superman, and I bought the cassette single of that. I, I think O Superman's about nine minutes long and the B side of the single was Walk the Dog. So it was like a 13 minute cassette. I guess O Superman was on A-side and, and Walk the Dog on the B-side, but I remember buying cassettes of UB-40 and Black Uhuru, two British reggae groups, cassettes of things, maybe that year by Magazine, The Wire. I had the cassette of the Cure's album Faith, because the cassette version was the only one that had that 30-minute film soundtrack called Carnage Visors on it, on the B-side. Oh, right. That's right. And I saw The Cure that year, either at the Ritz or Danceteria in New York, and so they before the show, they projected this film with the music recorded. They didn't play it live. It was just a a strange animated film. But I really liked that music. I had long walks in Queens between friend's house and where I lived, and putting that on thirty minute, you know, with that droning, you know, minor chord beat was really impressive at four in the morning. <laughs> and Faith Faith was certainly one of the hugest albums for the Cure. It changed them from a pop band to a goth band. It it was the first album that they did
0: in shades of gray you know speaking of transformations last week we had peter ewing on who's the editor of prog magazine and we were talking a little about king crimson king crimson released discipline in 1981 which i thought was a, a tremendous album i liked it more than the the earlier stuff that king crimson had done this lineup of king crimson featured robert fripp of course bill bruford on drums tony levin on bass and chapman stick and Adrian Ballou on guitar. And I was already a fan of Adrian Ballou from the work he had done with Zappa and Bowie and Talking Heads. So this record, to me, was really delightful. Well,
1: it's worth noting that in 1981, Robert Fripp released three albums. Let the Power Fall, an album of Frippertronics, which I had, the first League of Gentlemen album, and Discipline. So that showed him in relative three relatively different directions. I, I was looking for League of Gentlemen recently, like Almost all of Robert Fripp's music is not available to stream, and it's out of print on CD. It's something I'd really like to hear again. I don't even remember what it sounded like, but I haven't checked YouTube, so I'll have to check YouTube. We should point out that that Discipline album, in a very indirect way, has our paths crossing at one point.
0: Not in 1981, but in 1982. That's right. Unbeknownst to each other, we both attended a King Crimson concert at the Dr. Pepper Festival held at Pier 84 in New York, New York. And it was a pretty good show, as I recall. But we're talking about 1981. That was 82.
1: That was 1982. That's right. So I've got a long list of songs that you will diligently put into an Apple Music playlist. There was an awful lot of avant-garde isn't necessarily the word, but there was a lot of music coming out that was really pushing music in different directions. And, And here are a few examples. Killing Joke. I don't remember if this was their first or second album. Their song, Follow the Leaders, was fairly popular. Bauhaus, The Passion of Lovers, I think it was their next album that had Bella Vogosi's Dead, which was really their breakout hit. You had Grace Jones and Nightclubbing, and and she had taken the disco and the synth pop and the Giorgio Moroder sound and really put it into something interesting. You have bands like King Crimson, you have Cabaret Voltaire, Slide Out, which is a great song. Susie and the Banshees were popular. Spellbound was a big hit. I saw Susie and the Banshees that year, and I think I had front row tickets in some small uptown theater for that. And, you know, why? they didn't have that same, they had the makeup and the costumes and all that, but they didn't seem as radical as they did in all the press photos. Another few bands that were interesting, Lounge Lizards that I talked about some time ago, as one of my next tracks. Their eponymous album came out, and the song "Incident on South Street," which is the first song, really, really epitomizes the sound they had. Something like Crispy Ambulance. That now that has to be my favorite band name ever. Crispy Ambulance. They were a factory band, and they were on that double album called A Factory Quartet, where four bands each had a side uh, of a, of an LP. And their their first full album came out in 1981. There's a song called The Presence. It's like 12 minutes long. It's one of these really droning kind of electronic new wave, but with bass and all that. Wonderful song. And really got to check that out in the playlist. Probably one of the most important transitions occurred in 1981 when New Order released their first single, Ceremony in, in a Lonely Place, which, of course, they released it because Ian Curtis killed himself in 1980. These two songs, Ceremony and In a Lonely Place, were written by Joy Division, and they had performed them a couple times. In fact, the Joy Division album still was released 1981. There were two studio albums by Joy Division, and still was released because so many people were sharing bootleg recordings that the band decided that they would release a couple of live recordings and some outtakes and all that, and still has a very poor recording of the song Ceremony from the very last show they played in November of 1980 in Birmingham. The, the sound is horrible, but you can hear the, the energy there. So uh, after these two New Order songs, obviously New, or- New Order changed direction and went toward the sort of poppy music that
0: we know now. Some other significant albums that came out in 1981, Martha and the Muffins, this is the Ice Age, which is a difficult album to get your hand on nowadays. Uh, it had Women Around the World at Work and You Sold the Cottage, which I still think are great songs. But even more significant, I think, is that this album is one of the first that was produced by Daniel Lanois, who later would work with Brian Eno and U2 and Peter Gabriel and Bob Dylan and lots of people. Interestingly, one of the reasons he came to produce This Is The Ice Age is because his sister was in the band. Public Image Limited released The Flowers of Romance, which is a title that John Lydon suggested for Susie and the Banshees, but... They never did. Now, he insists that it's just a, a a good name for a record and that it doesn't mean anything. It sounds like some French symbolist poem, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Well, who knows what John Lydon is thinking about half the time. And speaking of Brian Eno, he and David Byrne put out My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which combined found audio objects with their poppy synthy world music compositions They use samples of an indignant radio host and uh, middle eastern mountain singing and a recording of an exorcism of all things lots of interesting voice things on it all done pre-digitally, too, which is pretty amazing. They made all this stuff work with tape.
1: David Byrne also released a solo album that year called The Catherine Wheel, which was a soundtrack for a dance show that was on Broadway. It was commissioned by Twilight Tharp. Right. And one of the songs went into rotation with the Talking Heads. It's called What a Day That Was. They, they do that song in Stop Making Sense in the film. And obviously, there's a lot more rhythm when Talking Heads play it. But I had that album on cassette, and I listened to that a lot. I think I wore that cassette out. As much as I wasn't a diehard Talking Heads fan. I really liked the the continuity of this because it, was meant, it wasn't meant as isolated songs. It was meant as a soundtrack. There were a lot
0: of instrumentals. And it, it sounds a lot like My Life in the Bush of Ghosts and other things that Talking Heads were doing at the time because, well, the same people are on it. Brian Eno is on it, Adrian Ballou, John Chernoff, Jerry Harrison, Steve Scales, Bernie Worrell. These were the people that David Byrne was playing with at that time. So has a has a great great sound
1: well again i I think the best album of the year was the clash of sandinista and i think the clash of sandinista is one of the best double albums ever made well triple albums no double albums because if you take out the cruft it's a great double album I, i smell what you're cooking the problem is most people never listen
0: to the third lp more than once because that's all the extra stuff It's funny you should say that because the record company, Epic, must also have been aware of the ponderousness of this triple album set such that they released a single LP to radio stations called Sandinista Now. I still have my copy. And it just featured what they thought the radio station should play. So it's really the cream of the cream from Sandinista. You get police on my back and somebody got murdered and Ivan meets G.I. Joe, Hitsville, UK.
1: Hitsville, UK is one of the happiest songs in the world, especially after Magnificent Seven. It comes into this with this little lilting melody and the sort of, you, you hear a sound kind of like, um, what is it, an ocarina or something? And then it's got this happy vibe about all these People hearing this great music on the radio and their lives are wonderful. You
0: know, one of the reasons I like doing shows like this is it allows me to put the vast store of DJ knowledge I have to good use. The woman who sings on Hitsville, UK, was Mick Jones' girlfriend at the time. Her name was Ellen Foley. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because she is the woman who is on Meatloaf's Bat Outta Hell. She specifically is the woman who has to know right now in Paradise by the Dashboard Lights. I'll actually have more to say about Ellen Foley a little later.
1: So there was a lot of dub and ska. Um, Mikey Dredd sang on a couple of the songs and did the dub versions of some of them. This was really early world music. The Clash were very open to this wide range of music. And, you know, you listen to this record, and there's rap, Magnificent Seven, which, okay, they appropriated. And there's rock, and there's almost punk, but the punk stuff is gone by the wayside. There's really poppy songs like Somebody Got Murdered, and it's just a great melody, but the lyrics are obviously not very happy. There's like a swing song. There's a wide range of music, and if they had only been a bit more disciplined and cut this down into two albums, not only that, each of the LP sides is more than 20 minutes. One is 25, one's 26, one's 24. So it was really about the equivalent of seven sides, if you consider you know 20 minutes for a side.
0: Yeah, it was either incredibly... Self-indulgent or just overly ambitious.
1: Well, because of all the fat, I think if you take out one LP worth of music and you make it just, you know, you make it an hour forty instead of two hours and twenty-four minutes, you get rid of all the dub versions, the kids singing career opportunities, and all the lame stuff.
0: Um, It's a good thing that the music was was so good in 1981 because we were looking at some of the other things that happened in 1981, as far as like news events and, well, let's look at movies. Some of the movies that came out that year are totally forgettable. And I think there's maybe only a handful that you'd even consider good.
1: (laughs) I mean, they're just- I don't know what was going on with movies that year, honestly. So the, the biggest movie was Raiders of the Lost Ark, understandably so. But in an average year, you'd have a few movies that are memorable. The second biggest movie was On Golden Pond, which may be the last time that Hollywood ever made a movie specifically for old people. Superman 2 was the third. And then you get things like Arthur Stripes, which is a cult film now, Cannonball Run, Chariots of Fire. That that was a big deal. I remember that being very popular in part because of the music by Vangelis.
0: Oh yeah, the soundtrack to Chariots of Fire was huge.
1: For Your Eyes Only, which is it might be the last Roger Moore, James Bond movie. Something called The Four Seasons, and I'm looking on Wikipedia, I don't even know, this is Alan Alder and Carol Burnett, and then Time Bandits, which was, you know, I, I, was this the first Terry Gilliam movie, I think?
0: Uh, probably the first significant one. He had a hand in directing the Monty Python films, and he also did something called Jabberwocky, but this was the first significant film from Terry Gilliam.
1: Yeah, it wasn't very good. Nah. When you look down the list of awards, so you see the other films that weren't very popular, The French Lieutenant's Woman which, you know, Meryl Streep won Best Actress. Reds, which was... I remember seeing that. It was a big deal. Heaven's Gate. Now, Heaven's Gate is one of these things that everyone trots this out as like the worst movie ever. And when I finally got around to seeing this 10 years ago, my first thought is, why are people criticizing this? This is an extraordinary movie. I think,
0: if I recall correctly, and I'm not sure if I am, I think the expectations for it were that it was going to be some kind of David Lean-like epic, because the budget was so big and I think people were just let down that it, it wasn't that sort of movie. According to Wikipedia, the
1: budget was forty four million dollars, which today would get you fifteen minutes of a superhero movie. <laughs> and the box office gross was only three point five million. Wow. No idea why. Yeah. It it was a film d'auteur, it was a foreign film made in English. As you say, it wasn't what people wanted. I don't know, but it was a pretty dismal year. Other things happened in 1981, all sorts of events.
0: Uh, Ronald Reagan started his first term in office in January. And then got shot? Promptly, yes. Yes, a couple months after. The Iranian hostage situation ended after 444 days. I remember that. Right. That number very distinctly. I remember the the day count on the news every evening. Who who was it? Which anchorman would say that? The guy they started Nightline, which was an ABC news program at eleven thirty, and that was Ted Koppel. Yes, Ted Koppel. It would be day one hundred and thirty-four, and here's what yeah. we're doing, and they would they would cover all the events that were related to that. But of course, obviously, the show yeah. um, expanded into doing news stories in general. Yeah. the first space shuttle mission was in nineteen eighty-one. They went up and then they came down to test it.
1: What I remember is that New York was a disaster. This was, you know, post near bankruptcy. The city was dirty. It was unsafe. Um, it was just a period when you didn't want to be in... This was the end of the period when you didn't want to be in New York. Obviously, when Reagan came in, things got a little bit worse, but this, this period here was pretty bad. The peak period of the danger in the subway system. You remember the Guardian Angels? Oh, sure, with the Red Berets. They they were these sort of vigilante group. Vigilante is not a good word. They were basically organized to protect people on the subway. They had these Red Berets, and they had T-shirts that identified them. And it's true that when you'd go on the subway late at night after going to a club someplace, you'd see two of those guys, you would feel a lot more comfortable. So we didn't mention probably the defining event of 1981 that took place a few weeks earlier it was December 8, 1980, when Paul McCartney's friend John Lennon was shot down in gun violence on in front of the Dakota.
0: Yeah, and you know, even though it happened in late 1980, it still feels like it's the end of the 70s.
1: Yeah, I remember it was... It was deathly cold at that period. I lived on West 96th Street and we went down to hang out around the building. And, you know, there were already news crews and lights. And so we didn't spend too much time there. But it really was. In fact, John Lennon's Imagine was one of the biggest hits in 1981, uh, at least hits that wasn't a, a new song. It was kind of, you know, this is the end of a decade here. And. It's fitting that a week later, The Clash come along with Sandinista, which is the the beginning of a decade, and all the other bands that did change music, and And just thinking of some of them, like Ultravox's Vienna. So I was a big Ultravox fan of the first three albums with John Fox, and then he left, and Midge Orr took over the lead in Ultravox. Now, why would someone want to call himself Midge? But whatever. And Vienna was one of these hugely popular synth-pop songs. But then at the same time, you had this grungy downtown music like Materials, Memory Serves. This was one of my next track picks a few months ago. You had some really poppy songs. You remember Scritti Polity, The Sweetest Girl? Or The Passions, I'm in Love with a German Film Star? That was just total pop. And of course, hey, we didn't mention one of the biggest songs that probably, it wasn't that big in 1981, but has since become big, Under Pressure.
0: By Queen and David Bowie. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't remember it making a lot of noise at the time. I don't remember hearing it a lot, but it has become a classic over time.
0: There was a lot of music in 1981 that did become classic over time and is still uh, really popular. We mentioned King Crimson's album, and while still not exactly prog rock, it still seemed like an evolution from prog, but this was also the year that Phil Collins released his first solo album, and Genesis, a prog rock stalwart, released Abacab. Now, I had diehard Genesis friends who really felt betrayed when Abacab came out. It was pure pop. And and you look at Phil Collins' solo album, arguably a
1: great song in the air tonight, a truly a memorable song, but that was the direction that he was going to take after that. And Genesis, you know, was just basically Phil Collins with a backing band.
0: Well, let me just mention some of the more mainstream rock albums that were released in 81. You had Ario e. Speedwagon, High Infidelity, Stevie Nicks, Belladonna, Men at Work's first album. Journey released Escape, which is the one with Don't Stop Believin' on it. Hall & Oates had Private Eyes. Steve Winwood, Ark of a Diver. Tom Petty, Hard Promises. The Pretenders' second album. Rush had Moving Pictures. And Kim Carnes released Mistaken Identity with the song Betty Davis Eyes, which is really funny to me because when that album was released, we played that on the college station, which is weird. But it crossed over to Top 40 pretty quickly, and we dropped it at the college station which just kind of shows you we we didn't even know what was real new wave anymore and what was pop music. But
1: the new wave sound permeated lots of music in that year. Let let's mention a couple of non-typical albums. Bob Dylan released Shot of Love. It was his third gospel album. Not a great album, but it does have the song Every Grain of Sand which is a true Dylan classic. There of course has to be a mention of the Grateful Dead. After their October uh, 1980 shows in Radio City and at the Warfield in San Francisco, where they did acoustic and electric sets, they released two albums in 1981, Reckoning, which was a an acoustic album, which is just wonderful. It's really a classic. Dead Set, which is an electric album, isn't that good. But Reckoning was, for us deadheads, hearing Reckoning was really a, a great moment. Now, I had seen two of the Radio City shows, so I knew what the music was like. But to hear all that live acoustic music, that, that that stands out as one of the best Grateful Dead official releases.
0: What about jazz? Anything significant?
1: Miles Davis released a record in 1981. It was his first record since 1976. He had had this hiatus when he had a whole lot of problems with drugs and legal issues and things. So he released a record called The Man with the Horn in 1981, which isn't very good. It's not memorable. But it was his attempt to come back after a long, long period of not doing anything.
0: Well, so what's it sound like? I mean, what's it going to do for me?
1: You know, that's a tough question. I think I've listened to it once and I don't remember.
0: Oh, that's a good answer. (laughs) I I have, I have all of, I, I have all of his
1: recordings, all of his studio recordings, and I really don't remember it. Now there was another album in 81 called Directions, which was a bunch of outtakes that he'd recorded between 1960 and 1970. And it was a sort of contractual obligation album. There's some really good stuff in it. It it is a good album, but it wasn't, you know, it's the old Tio Massaro stuff, but it wasn't new music. It was Columbia saying, okay, you've been five years now. You got to do something because he moved to Warner Brothers. So he, Columbia still had rights to release some old stuff. And he was now on Warner Brothers for the new stuff. But I looked and there wasn't a lot in jazz that was going on. Bill Evans died in September, 1980. I don't know. It seems like jazz just was sort of in a slump around that period that there was nothing really big. And, you know, Wikipedia has all these lists of 1981 in film and music and jazz. And the only things they talk about, a couple jazz festivals and people who died and people who were born... But there are no really important album releases.
0: Didn't Pat Matheny release the, uh, the Wichita Falls record or whatever order of the words are in that title? I forgot. He
1: did. And yeah, and that's actually one of the songs on my list. That was him and Lyle Maze. That wasn't his first album though. Oh no. Um, but it was a, how could you call it? It was, it was the, probably the first album with that signature acoustic song that sort of, you know, because the, the albums he did, like New Chautauqua and American Garage that were really popular, they were band albums. And, and as Falls Wichita, so Falls Wichita Falls, was him on guitar with a bass player and a little bit of percussion. And it's a really mellow album. The, the title track is one side, 20 minutes long. It is a very attractive record. So 1981 was a big year. And in fact, an article in The Guardian says, forget 1966, because 1981 was Pop's Year of Revolution. It references 1966 because a book had just been released by John Savage called 1966, The Year the Decade Exploded. And obviously, if you were around 20 years old in 1966, that's the big year for you. And if you were around 20 in 1981, that's the big year for you. But it is true that there were a number of revolutions in sound in the way people were experiencing music with the Walkman. You know, the the beginning of MTV, even if it was relatively low-key at first because no one saw it. This really did set the stage for what was going to come next, and music piracy. The home taping was killing music, wasn't it?
0: That's right. Home taping totally eliminated music. That's why we haven't had any music since 1981.
1: There's been no music. I guess that's why, that's why we can only think of things as far back as 1981.
0: Oh, I thought I was just losing my memory. I much prefer that explanation. Now, we will present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you going to be listening to?
1: This week, now that I've overdosed on 1981, it's time to go back in time a little bit to 1960. There has just been a new release of Miles Davis and John Coltrane in Miles Davis's Bootleg series, Volume 6, and it's the final tour from 1960. This is the really good stuff. This is before Train left the quintet, and they were playing the stuff from Kind of Blue, songs like So What?, Round Midnight, which was earlier than that, on Green Dolphin Street. It's got some wonderful sound. I listened to an hour of it the other day. Long, long jams, 10, 15, 18 minutes. Great sound. It's all mono, but excellent sound. And it's kind of sad to listen to this, knowing that this is really the end, and Coltrane was going to be around for a few years, and then he'd die, and then you know, Miles would, of course, go on and be another kind of Miles a few years later, but this captures this great quintet at a great time with a great sound with two of the best jazz musicians ever. It's a shame that jazz, we're always looking back at the classical music in jazz, but it's really good to hear these recordings. So Miles Davis and John Coltrane, the final tour, Bootleg Series Volume 6.
0: Doug, what are you listening to this week? Earlier, when we were talking about The Clash's Sandinista album, I mentioned singer Ellen Foley, who sang Backup, on a couple of Sandinista tracks, and who was also in a relationship with Mick Jones of The Clash at the time. In fact, the song Should I Stay or Should I Go from Combat Rock is supposedly about this relationship. Well, for those of you who can't get enough of the music on Sandinista, as if three discs wasn't enough, let me recommend my next track pick, Ellen Foley's second solo album from 1981 called Spirit of St. Louis. It was produced by Mick Jones and featured The Clash. In fact, they play on pretty much every track And most of the songs were written by Joe Strummer and Mick Jones and Time and Dog, who they were working with at the time. You could almost consider it the fourth disc of the three-disc Sandinista. It was recorded right after they finished Sandinista using the same personnel and instrumentation. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if some of these tracks were intended for Sandinista, but ultimately rejected. Now, this is not a bad record, and I remember liking it at the time. Ellen Foley was considered an up-and-coming singer. She had been doing backup vocals. I mentioned that she was on uh, Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell from 1977. I think she had one or two singles released from this album that got some airplay and charted. Later, though, not so much. During the 80s, Ellen Foley did some film and Broadway and TV acting. She had a regular role on the comedy series Night Court for its first year, which is something I did not know until about 10 minutes ago. So, if you like Sandinista or you're a Clash completist, check it out. Ellen Foley, Spirit of St. Louis, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.